Invite only. Friday, February 23rd. Tickets and details available at strathmore.org. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. I'm Kamaya. I'm Amira. I'm Kaya. I'm Kamaya. And you're listening to WPFW Washington. Another man done gone. Another man done gone. From the county farm, another man done gone. A jury of your peers having found you guilty. Ten years. Come on, come on. I was in jail too, man. It's cold blooded in the jail. You go down there looking for justice. That's what you find. Just us. Welcome to another edition of Crossroads Today. Now here's your host, Coach Brown. Coming Coming to you live from Ben's Chili Bowl. We, we come, come to you the, the first Tuesday of each month, live from Ben's Chili Bowl. Uh, this is our two-hour show, and I want to say thanks to everybody who's, uh, oh, my man is helping me out with this echo we're getting right here. Good morning, my guests. There's Ron Hampton and Melissa Wassner. Thank you for joining us. This is part two. We had them on last week. And we were talking about the Omnibus Crime Bill. Can you kill echo? The Omnibus Crime Bill. In fact, the city council today is meeting to vote on this Omnibus Crime Bill. And last week we had two guests, Ron Hampton from the Black uh, National Association of Black Police Officers and Melissa Wassner from the ACLU. We wanted to invite them back to continue our talk, our discussion on the omnibus crime bill that the city council is entertaining this morning and they vote on. And it's uh, 12 members, 11 members voted in favor of it. And one, the young lady from Ward 5 uh, who voted against uh, this omnibus crime bill. You said four people voted against it. Okay, beautiful. Ward Ward 4. Janice Lewis George is from Ward 4. But before we start, let me open up at what we call the grapevine. We'll get right back to you. I guess... Just hold tight a minute. We open up with what we call the grapevine. Information that you can use. The grapevine. Hey, hey, hey. The New York City Council overrides Mayor Eric Adams' vetoes on solitary confinement ban and police transparency bill. The New York City Council voted Tuesday to override Mayor Eric Adams' vote vetoes on the solitary confinement ban and the bill to document police stops. The bill on solitary confinement will require all people in the city and all people in the city's custody to have at least 14 hours of out-of-cell time in the congregate setting, unless for the purpose of de-escalation confinement or during emergency lock-ins which would limit the confinement to a maximum of four hours after an incident or confrontation. This bill that uh, Mayor Eric Adams in New York is, 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 is vetoed uh, is because a lot of problems in New York City and a lot of folks in Washington, how they have uh, they voted to, to outlaw or stop using the solitary confinement. 
Now the city council had to use their power to override the mayor to make sure that solitary confinement and accountability and police transparency are evident and are a part of the, uh, the part process in New York City. Secondly, some Californians released from prison will receive $2,400 under a new state reentry program. Recipients will get the money over a series of payments after meeting certain milestones, such as showing progress and finding places to live and work. Incarcerated men stand outside the classroom of the peer literacy program at San Quentin State Prison in San Quentin, California. California's release from prisons could receive direct cash payments, along with help in job searches and other support. Uh, hundreds of Californians released from the prison could receive the direct cash payments of $2,400, along with counseling, job search, assistance, and other support. On a first-in-the-nation program aimed at easing the transition out of incarceration and reducing recidivism. We need this in D.C. We need it all over the city, all over the country. Men and women are being released with less than 50 or $20 or $30 in their pocket. This $2,400 to, to give the men and women coming out of institution is not only badly needed, but it should be a necessity that they need money to live when they come out of the institution. So please keep that in your mind. The food on your table brought to you by prison labor. Incarcerated workers help produce some of America's most popular food brands, but get few of the benefits and protections afforded to others. If you shop at Walmart, Target, Costco's, Whole Foods, or many other large grocery chains recently, there's a chance you purchased food produced by prison labor, according to a year-long investigation published by the Associated Press. While the 1935 law makes it illegal, check this out, Larry Watson, while a 1935 law makes it illegal to transport goods made by convict labor across state lines, an exemption exists for agricultural commodities that today is, amounts to hundreds of millions of dollars of commerce, according to the Associated Press. So the food you eat eating and the vegetables could be made, raised and grown and harvested by prisoners who do not receive the adequate benefits and training and, 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 and related uh, uh, benefits that go along with this program. So your food could be picked, raised, and grown and harvested by men and women in prisons all over America. So check out the next time you go into Costco, Walmart, and them folks to see what's happening without food. And lastly, Baltimore residents distressed by the surge in juvenile crimes, lawmakers seek Legal change, a rash of recent juvenile crimes as Baltimore residents on edge. And not only is this happening in Baltimore, it's happening all across the country. Folk, we have a series of crises, upon crisis, uh, in crisis, and coming out of crisis. Everything we seem to talk about seems to be a damn crisis. How can so much go wrong for so many and nobody seems to have the answers? But we know some people. Who do have the answers? Good morning. Our guest this morning is Melissa Wasson and Ron Hampton. Melissa was with us last week. This is part two. And she is with the ACLU and a dynamic attorney. I'm proud of you, Melissa Wasson. And to my man, my good friend, Ron Hampton, an ex-police 
officer who's been on the force 24 years. He's been active in the community. Ron has been on all the radio, TV, and talk shows across the city and across the nation. And the same is for Melissa Wasser. We have two well-informed, knowledgeable people about this omnibus crime bill that the city council is considering in D.C. this morning. Good morning, Ron Hampton and Melissa Wasser. On the roads, how you doing? How you morning, doing? Rich. Good morning. And Merry Christmas to you both. We yeah. want to thank you for welcoming to come to our show here at the world famous historic Ben's Chili Bowl. We'll start. Excuse me. We'll start with you first, uh, Melissa. The city council is hearing this morning to vote on an omnibus crime bill, uh, which is raising a lot of uh, pushback from various quarters in the city. What's ACLU's, the American Civil Liberties, position on this omnibus crime bill that the city council is set to vote on this morning? You got it, Melissa. What's ACLU's position? Yeah, Roach. Well, thanks again for asking me back. Uh, I had a great time last week, and I'm excited to talk to you all again. Um, you know, our position still remains the same, right? We deserve to be safe from crime, and we deserve to be safe from abuse of power. And this bill, um, the Secure DC omnibus bill that they're putting forward for a first vote today, um, would, you know, open the door for abuse of power, you know, allowing officers to escape accountability and to harass people in designated drug-free zones around the city is not going to make D.C. safer. Allowing officers to choke people won't make D.C. safer. Locking more people up before they're found guilty will not make us safer. And so, you know, today we will be at the legislative meeting at the Wilson Building uh, in front of the council, and we urge the council to reject those provisions that put our safety and our rights at risk, and they should be focusing on building a more comprehensive public safety system that focuses on prevention, effectiveness, and accountability, which is what our residents need and deserve. Uh-huh. Go ahead, Ron. What's your take on this, Ron? Well, Rose, first of all, let me say good morning to everyone, uh, you, Melissa, Martine, and uh, just glad to be back with you, my brother. Uh, our position is the same as the ACLU's position. I mean, you know, and I've, I've known and worked with the ACLU for many years, and uh, they're coming down right on this like they have been and should be. Uh, I, I'd like to start off with this, with this quote. The things that make communities safe have nothing to do with patrol cars and badges. It's about the strength of the neighborhood. It's, the, it's about the strength of neighborhood economic opportunities, housing, schools, and medical care. All of that stuff riches people and, and makes their lives even richer. And, 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 and the city council has missed that. The mayor has missed that. And, and that's one of the reasons why I believe we're in the situation that we're in, because, see, this didn't start the other day. This is something that's been going on for a long time. And you can't turn around a situation when you go in a negative uh, 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 direction. You know, uh, Amnesty International has a, a, a perfect uh, uh, slow. Uh -huh. I'm not I'm I'm not quoting it verbatim, but in other words, that when you're in the dark, turn on the light, shine a light. And, and this here is creating even more darkness in our community. It's not turning on the light because it's not dealing with the issues that exist in our community. And we haven't had the ability, we haven't had that kind of, those kind of resources pointed at and dispersed in our community to deal with the issues that we are now seeing the manifestations of. So uh, 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 whether or not you, you, you allow 
police officers to choke people out and all those kind of crazy things. And and and, and lastly, let me say this. See, I was around on the force from 1970 to 1994. I saw what uh, the police did. I, I remember the jump outs. I remember uh, pushing drugs all over the city because when the police came in, they would clear the block and then they would just go to the next block. See, that's that's what that's a preview of what it is that we're about to see all over again. And 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 that it didn't work then and it's not going to work now. There's no evidence. I, I even want to use some of that term. There's no evidence based out there that that suggests somehow or another that that worked. But the 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 research and the evidence show that if you apply some prevention, if you deal with the fundamental foundational issues that exist in our community that I spoke about earlier, then we can address those issues in a very proactive, foundational kind of way. Okay. Uh, let me say this. Both of y'all mentioned about the chokeholds. There are certain provisions in this bill that are anti-constitutional. Uh, uh, they are violations of the Constitution. And that thing about the chokehold, I grew up as a little kid, and I used to get arrested at eight, nine, ten years old. And would you believe they would chokehold us at nine and ten years old and throw us in the back of the car? The only difference was back then, then they handcuffed you with your hands in front, not with your hands behind your back. So uh, the defenders were able to make little moves to try to get away or whatever. But the chokehold, I don't care how you're doing. Eric Garner <clears throat> was choked to death up in New York. There's a few other people when they're choking. Everybody, after that happened with George Floyd and Eric Garner, you hear guys hollering, <clears throat> I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The situation in Tennessee with the five cops pulling the guy out of the car and beating, he said, I can't breathe. What you, be, what you doing this to me for? Certain things need to be outlawed, period. They, they can restrain somebody without putting something around your neck and choking you. You know what I mean? They got stun guns. They got tasers. They got things that can incapacitate you. But when you put your arms around somebody's neck and you got three, four police and y'all in the middle of a scuffle and a guy said he can't breathe and you don't know how much pressure you're exerting on this guy's throat. That is one of these things that I'm thinking that uh, somebody said this other day. This is a, these, part of this new omnibus crime bill is like passive Jim Crow laws. Laws that were designed in the 30s, 40s, and 50s to keep us in the backseat of the, the bus or the truck or whatever. These passive Jim Crow laws <clears throat> about uh, moving the, uh, the drug zone. They can come in, just lock you up, move you until you move. This is the same thing that came out of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Yeah. What is your take? <laughs> both of y'all, what, what is your take on these it's passive Jim Crow, Crow laws, laws that's, that's included, included in this massive Omnibus crime bill. Well, well so we y'all back so we can deal with other aspects of this bill because there's certain things in there that are really illegal, unjust, unfair, and demeaning. Yeah. Well, Rose, let me tell you. You know, I didn't. I didn't have. Uh, I didn't have a a hell of an arrest record when I was there because I didn't necessarily believe that arrest was the solution to all of the problems. So, but I tell you what, the arrest that I did make, I never grabbed anybody around the neck. Uh, in an attempt to arrest them, do to obtain, uh, detain them, and none of those kind of things. That that wasn't the case. So I don't understand why uh, they have to have this uh, this piece. As a matter of fact, 
uh, when I served on the uh, D.C. Police Reform Commission, those were things that we absolutely said that we didn't that we didn't want the police department to have because you can't accidentally choke someone out. If you're gonna play someone, yeah, if you're gonna place someone under arrest, don't go for their neck. If you yeah. wanna place them under arrest, then you 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 wanna put their hands in handcuffs, put them behind their back and those kind of things. So you don't wanna. Uh I just that just wasn't something that I had uh any experience in doing. Uh, and like I said, uh, I didn't make an awful lot of arrests, but I made arrests when it was arrest was necessary. But I never grabbed somebody by the neck. I just don't understand why that even has to be uh, part of the conversation. Yeah. You know, both of y- go ahead, go ahead, uh, Melissa. You said, both of y'all said there's four city councilmen who abstained or who voted against this. You want to give us those four, and then. So let me let me let me let me let me go back to that. Can you clarify um, think, that, please? Yeah, I got I got you. So um, in the previous versions, we had one we had one uh, council member vote against, and that was Janice Lewis George. When we were putting up fours, we met because she's from Ward Four. She's the Ward yeah. Four council member. So there was that on the on the chokeholds. Um, you know, something that came up in previous iterations of the bills that were all pushed pushed together for the omnibus was this thing with neck restraints and. Something that came up in the testimony um, for that last fall was, you know, MPD is concerned when they just touch someone's the back of someone's neck to get them into a car. And so what was given was there should be an exception for brief, unintentional and incidental contact. Now, that was what we were working with up until this new version of the omnibus came out this week. Um, They have now uh, removed the brief unintentional and incidental exception. Can you repeat that again? Did you say they removed the chokehold piece? No, no, no. They didn't remove the chokehold piece. They gave an exception for MPD. So basically MPD was concerned that without some sort of exception, they wouldn't be able to even put a, a hand on someone's neck incidentally, very briefly to put them in the car. So what the council did was they came up with language as an exception to do brief, unintentional and incidental contact, which most, I think, experts, uh, you know, they were okay with it. I don't know if they were fully on board with it, but it was better than what we had had. The new version of the bill came out this week, and that was removed. Um, uh, the, the reason the council gave was that it created a loophole. But, re- you know, regardless of that, they still are removing the word movement um, from the definition of a neck restraint. So, so what th- this is a change that is in direct opposition to the council's own rationale for passing this law and banning these types of chokeholds in the first place. They were responding to the killings of, uh, you know, the police killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd by police in the summer of 2020. And the council themselves reasoned that banning these neck restraints was the provision most responsive to the circumstances of George Floyd's death. Yes. Okay. I want that to sit with folks that the council did this as the provision most responsive to the circumstances of George Floyd's death. And now this is, this is going away and these chokeholds will be back on, on the street. And listen, it, it, it doesn't, you're it doesn't. The chokeholds will be, you're saying the chokeholds will be re-implemented in this new crime bill. Yeah. So they, they got rid of these exceptions, right? So even though MPD is saying there's a ban on the use of chokeholds, right? Allowing police to choke people and, and escape accountability is not an element 
that will make DC safer right now. And so if they wanted to have a brief exception, that would be one thing. But taking that out and still restricting someone's movement, these changes, they're deadly. They're, uh, you know, they're dangerous and they're completely unnecessary. What's your take on that, Ron? Roach, Roach, I agree. I I agree. As I I stated earlier, I made some arrests. I I never went for a person's neck intentionally or accidentally. Uh, This here is the work of the union. And see, the FOP, the police union, wants to push back and have been pushing back on these reforms even before the D.C. Police Reform Commission. They were opposed to all of this. And because they they see this as an infringement on what it is that police do. But the police don't work for themselves, nor do they work for the union. They work for the citizens of the District of Columbia. Yes. That's who they had to be responsible to. And then that responsibility encompasses integrity, accountability, transparency. And those are key issues. So, you know, this whole thing, some light has to be shined on this stuff. And we ought not be paying attention to the union because the union doesn't have any responsibility to public safety in the city. It's That's a right. represent police officers. They, they don't have no responsibility to public safety. And we ought not be cap. Cal- I'm not. I, I don't I don't believe in Caltown to them. But the council and the mayor shouldn't be either. That's right. You know, one of the things we talked about last week, this is part two of our conversations on the Honorable Crime Bill in D.C. And what did, what really grabbed me is the one about uh, allowing the cops to view the body cameras before oh. they write the initial report. After the show last week, I went back and did some more research. And I found out that based on the initial report, uh, when the cops write up a crime, the initial incident report, that's the charging document. That's the document they decide whether to charge you with felonies, aggravated felonies, uh, crime enhancements, et cetera, that an initial document. And when you get arrested and you go to prison, one of the first places you go when you go into prison, you say, man, take me to the law library. And you meet one of the inmate law clerks. And he, the first thing he asks you is, give me your, uh, your, your arrest, the initial police report when they arrested you and charged you. And they use that arrest, initial report the file of 2255 or 44 or habeas corpus or whatever to the court to say that your initial arrest was illegal. This is a tantamount to there's three cases that uh, you might be familiar with this, uh, uh, Melissa. There's three cases where the initial police report was wrong. The judge read it. They overturned the conviction, took the person's sentence off. And as a result of that, Everybody in America benefited from this report. And the first one is Miranda. Eduardo <laughs> Miranda was a Spanish guy who got arrested and he used his police report. And they went to the court and he said, y'all didn't tell him he had a right to keep, keep his mouth shut. He had a right to an attorney. Anything you say can, can and will be used against you. And when they saw that wasn't included in the police report, the Supreme Court made a decision and overturned that decision. As a result of that, everybody in America uh, enjoyed the benefit of the Miranda decision. And there's a couple of other cases where men who have been arrested and the police lied or uh, misinterpreted what they put in the document, and they got to court, and a young man used that initial report. So that initial police report is crucial. 
So I am really adamant. Man. I worked in the law library for about 20, 30 years inside these institutions. And I know the value mm-hmm. of that initial Polish report. And the, and, the, uh, the other report wrote that is key to this is when, when it comes to the investigation of what happened. And see that that isn't always with that isn't always with the charging document, but if there's some if there's some hint of of abuse, misuse of power, if it's a hint of it, then the officers are required to write a report. Yes. A, a, a journal of what happened. And if they allow, if they are allowed to look at the film before they write their report. That's cheating. Intro. That's cheating. That's what it is. That's, that's because see, I, I don't, if you're making the rest, make the arrest and write the report. Oh, and yeah. if it's a mistake of the heart, we'll the community will understand that. But if this is an intentional act, like what we saw in Memphis, like what we saw in New York, what like what we saw in Minnesota, those are mistakes of the head. That was intentional. And seeing then when the report was written, because there were reports on file for all of these cases, they lied. There ain't no way to put it, no soft way to put it. They lied on the report. And what was on the report did not jive with what people saw. In the Memphis case, the chief of police saw the report. She was reading the report while she was looking at the video, and they did not match. Match, yes. And her conversation with the district attorney in Memphis moved her to fire those police officers that was involved in that situation. That's why we don't need to allow them to see there and you, you see the report before they write Hold the up report. a minute. We, uh, this is our fall, winter uh, fun drive here at WPFW and we're here pitched from Jerry Parrish. Come on, Jerry. Thank you, Roach. So it is very important that you participate in this broadcast by supporting WPFW. We speak truth to power. You're hearing about justice issues that you will never, ever hear about on mainstream, or as I call it, lamestream media. They're not there for you. (laughs) They're not here for us. They're not here for community. They are here for profit. But right now we're looking at what is going on with a flawed policing system. And there's panic going on as they're trying to make new rules to address what they're calling a crime wave. It's not a crime wave. It is more akin to a riot. We are dealing with economic warfare and the police unknowingly are being thrust onto the front lines. People are trying to eat. People are trying to raise their families. This is akin to real warfare because people are dying. If you look at the March on Washington in 1963, the first thing on all the placards in the signs was jobs. It was about jobs, jobs, jobs. Right now, for those who are able, we are asking you, or we are imploring that you support WPFW because it is your platform for justice in a world that is in chaos right now. We can fix this. Jobs are what's needed for those people that are out there that can create jobs, create some jobs, please. WPFW, our most recent employees, the three employees are under 30. These kids need jobs. Simple as that. And we need your support right now. 
9739 operator standing okay. by at the phone waiting for your call and your pleasure of support out of area 800-222-9739 i don't have a computer screen in front of me right now but we've got a goal for this show and we need to make this goal right. nobody right. talks about this anywhere else other than wpfw please support us thank you thank you jerry <coughs> excuse me everybody uh melissa one of the questions i wanted to raise with you is uh this bill made it easier for judges to detain defendants while awaiting trial. Explain what that is. This is like pretrial detention. Absolutely, Roach. So the bill would make permanent the changes of pretrial detention that uh, previous emergency and temporary bills uh, that we saw this past summer. It makes those changes permanent. And so in practice, what is this going to do? It's going to lock up more black and brown folks uh, pretrial, um, you know, and you know, we we just heard from Jerry talking about the the crime wave and people are, are people are scared and you know they want to prevent crime they want to see crime go down and if preventing crime is the goal pretrial detention expanding that is not the way to go about preventing crime if we look to the data I mean pretrial releases in the district are not driving crime ninety two percent of people released from pretrial are not rearrested. And only 1% are rearrested for a violent offense while awaiting trial. Again, 1% of people released pretrial are rearrested uh, so for a violent they, offense. So why are they expanding pretrial if 92% is successfully complete the program and that 1% get rearrested? Why are they even messing with something that's already proven to be successful? So, you know, I think I think the the, the counter argument is we have to do something. Um, that is what we heard all summer was that we have to do something to be responsive to these to this uh, uptick in crime, we have to be responsive to what residents want in the community. Um, but again, locking more people up pretrial has a negative effect on public safety. Even short periods of unnecessary detention, I think it's uh, like three days. Even um, you know, even one day is too long, right? But I think three days increases a person's risk of rearrest. And if you separate out, it's ineffective. It, it's not working because we've had this since the summer. And the same issues are still happening. And so beyond it being ineffective, it's also our constitutional right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. And pretrial detention does just the opposite. It treats certain people as guilty until proven innocent. And they could be held you know, for years until their case goes to trial at the D.C. jail, which is a separate issue of the horrific conditions that exist at the jail. You know, we got a, we got a friend who just got arrested in 84 misdemeanor. And they held, and they again holding him on pretrial detention. He got six kids, six kids, three of them under five years old, and they put him on uh, preventive detention, home confinement, under electronic monitoring. He cannot walk. He go to the front. He can't go to the car to help his wife unload the packages or the school. When the kid gets sick, he can't take the kids to the hospital because they can't leave go for a certain distance. And the problems that this pretrial detention imposed on this guy caused more problems because the family don't have his, his income. He can't work. He can't get out. He can't go to different places. So when they talk about expanding pretrial detention, this blows my mind. I'm just, it makes you want to kick somebody in the butt. You know, the bottom line is you need jobs. People ain't working. Uh, when you go to the doctor and the doctor tell you, you tell him what your illness is, and he say, well, how were you sleeping? What led to this? They try to discover the causations or the reasons how you got this. Why right. is it this process is not being used in the criminal justice field? When somebody breaks the law, the little nine and 12-year-old kid got arrested for robbing somebody, 
I keep telling the story of the five-year-old kid who asked me for a job at five. And I gave him a job answering the trash, emptying the trash. He came back on the third day and said, Mr. Roach, I need a raise. I started laughing. You're five years old. You need a raise? I said, what you need the money for? Kids need money. At five years old, he recognized, and it doesn't seem fair. I'm not knocking Myron. Myron Burr was a personal friend of mine. Uh, when you give people these summer jobs for two months, you get a check every two weeks for two months. Then the next 10 months, you don't get no money. How do you live if you got a job only for two months or 60 days in the summer and the other 10 months, there's no jobs. These kids need money. There's no jobs for these kids in terms of we grew up, we had paper routes. We could work at the safe. We could do all, all that's been eliminated. What? So our kids need jobs to make sure that they can stay out of this trouble. And I'm telling yeah. you, go ahead. There's, go ahead, there's, there's, there's cities that are, Moving in the right direction. Uh, what New York just did, I believe you mentioned something about it in the intro. What New York just did was overrode the mayor's veto Man. to have to bring transparency and integrity to the process. The mayor is a former police officer himself. He wasn't a police reformer when he was uh, a, a On police officer. He, he was a traditionalist. He was also very political. And, and I knew him and remember those days, but he wasn't a police reformer. So he he vetoed the proposal coming out of the council. Banned solitary confinement. Say, and the curse, the veto it, and the call for transparency and accountability by asking and telling the police department that they had to document these stuff. Now, that that isn't exactly foolproof, but it's a step in the right direction. And there are other cities that have gone the route of, of, of reducing preventive detention and also cash bond. Because if 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 you don't have money, you're not going to get money if you're going to be in jail. And if you don't have money from the <laughs> beginning, how are they going to put you in jail because you don't have cash to put up to get a bond? See, the, the system is rigged against you rather than for you. And that's what that's what this whole reform movement has been about. And, and it isn't new, but there are people in cities with courage to turn back those traditionalists as it relates to this. The police lovers, the people who, who just think they can't live without the police, and yet the police don't do anything for them. And we ought to begin, <laughs> it ought to move us toward questioning the investment that we make. I, we live in America, and I think we got to be real. So there will always be, I believe, some form of police. But we can do some of this ourselves. Yes. We can do, yes. It. We can do it ourselves. We've been doing, making our community safe and in our community for a long time. We need to go back to that and 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 and, and take take what it makes to get to, to, to make our community safe, like I alluded to earlier. Those are the real things that make our community safe every day. A patrol car, up in where I live, there's a police probably two blocks away sitting up in a corner somewhere and he ain't doing nothing. Yeah. yeah there he, are police. He, yeah, he ain't doing anything. He, there are police he chiefs that are fighting the police unions on police reform. The unions are strangling the police chiefs. We're trying to make change happen. This is a primary issue. Please help us out. You you know that there's one issue that uh, that, that that's in, uh, isn't in public. Vincent Sherati used to be there in Washington, D.C., in charge of the Department of Youth Services. 
He left and went to New York and was working with the Department of Probation and Youth Services. Now, the new governor in Maryland, Westmore, appointed Vincent Girardi as the director of youth services for the entire state of Maryland. Last week, the chairman of the New York Police Correction Fraternal Order Police Union came down against Vincent Girardi saying that he was pro-inmate, pro-whatever. There's been 176 Correction officers fired from the Department of Correction in New York City, uh, New York City, 176. And they've been fired, terminated, and they've been reinstated. Some of them have did some brutal uh, assaults on inmates. They had videos of them, et cetera. And the same uh, chairman of the Fraternal Order Police in New York spoke out against Vincent Chirotti when he came. He's working down in Washington. I know him personally. I worked with him. We went, went to some of his institutions, and he believed in playing fair. 50-50, treat you the way I want to be treated. And the police union uh, chairman saying that Vincent Chirotti should not be in that position, I beg to differ. This man got a kind heart. I worked with him down at the uh, New Beginners, and when he worked at the Department of Youth Services, I've been knowing Vinny for 20 or 30 years. And usually when the, when the union come against you, that's because you t- you saying things that's going to tax, take away, or curtail, or restrict they work or the efforts that the union does. And I'm saying this police, uh, the chairman of the fraternal order police in, in New York City, man, you're out of line. You're messing with the wrong man. And Governor Westmore, keep Vincent Cerati. You got somebody who care about people and human beings. And that's what we need. People need. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Who look yeah, at he, 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 did that same work. he did that huh? same work. He did that same work. He did that same stuff here when he was here. And he's doing it now in Baltimore. He he did yeah. some good work when he was in New York for that little short stint. But the yes. but but any time, like like you said, any time those guys from the union come out against you, you must be doing something. Something right, something right. They for the status quo. They don't want nothing moved. They want to keep it like it was. And they for mass incarceration when it comes to black and brown people. Make hey, no listen, mistake about it. Melissa, we asked you the question about the, the judge getting the right to detain uh folk for pre-trial what are the basis what grounds would they have to use to decide to keep somebody uh in custody so i think right now in the bill it's based on what crime they're being accused of so there's a list of certain crimes that would automatically um put them up for up for pre-trial detention um automatically and so you know we're, we're also dealing today with a couple of amendments um, you know, from different council members. Uh, we're not sure if we're going to get an amendment on pretrial just yet. Um, but again, the judges have the list of what crimes they're committing and then they would automatically say, okay, you're, you're, you're getting put on, you're getting put on pretrial detention. But again, you know, it, it, it goes back to why are you passing, why are we passing this bill? Um, what is the purpose? You know, if, again, if it's preventing crime, it's not going to lower the crime levels. We've had this since the summer and it hasn't brought anything down. And so again, you know, it would be our suggestion to remove that, um, you know, give it some time to see, okay, you've had this for so many months. Are we collecting data of the people that were locking up pre-trial? Um, are we, you know, uh, understanding the full effects of that on public safety? I don't think we are. Um, this is something that shouldn't be, you know, rushed through. Again, we got a new version of this bill yesterday at 12 noon. It's been a day. It's been a day for people to look at and review almost a hundred pages. I know, you know, 
we all got jobs. Uh, we all have other responsibilities. Um, you know, people can't really take all that in and under a day and be like, wait, why are we doing this? This is too fast. You know, we got to slow it down. And if it was up to us, the pretrial section, you know, we would urge them to remove it and look to the data. You know, this is amazing. This is some more jiggy boogie. If you're talking about making the streets safe, making the city safe, passing laws, laws that never made nobody safe. Don't make the streets safe. There's nothing in this bill about prevention. We're talking about punishment and you're punishing people. And we got crime. This is knee jerk reaction as opposed to putting money this morning on the news. They spent 61 billion to sent to Ukraine. 45 billion went to Israel. Another 5 billion went to the UN. How much money went to the black community? We ain't got none of these billions. New York city just spent, uh, got a new policy now that migrants in New York city, this bus from Texas, get a thousand dollar debit card. When they arrive in New York City, what about our people coming out of prison? What about the homeless people here on the streets in Washington, D.C.? There's nothing in this bill that deal with prevention, deterrence, programming, housing, the needs that would, the issues that will reduce the crime, make the city safe. Laws don't make us safe. People do. And we got to be used to the right people to make this thing happen. So, uh, it's I'm reactive. Just, uh, huh? It's completely reactive. You're you're 100% right, Roach. I mean, it's just a reactive approach to public safety rather than a proactive approach. Again, I think we talked about it last week, but Ron himself was on the D.C. Police Reform Commission. There's been a report since April of 2021 that has been publicly available that shows how we can decenter police. You know, do, do police need to be responding to people in mental health crisis? No. Do we do we need to make sure that, um, you know, people feel safe and that there are resources in our community? Of course. And so there's there's um, a lot of these recommendations in the Police Reform Commission that the council could pass instead to be proactively pursuing public safety, not being reactive in its approach. You know, we're going to do we're going to take another pitch from Jerry. But before when we come back, I'd like to ask uh, Melissa, you and Ron, if you were the mayor or the chairman of the city council, what would you do to address this particular problem? Go ahead, Jerry, you do our pit. So we need you to help us complete the equation right now, because the only way that we're able to bring you broadcasts like this is by way of your continued support. Commercial media is not going to touch this. Public safety is thrown out the window for profit. So here we are talking about your public safety and we need your help in order to do it. Please give us a call. The toll-free number is 800-222-9739. We have a goal for this hour. We think that this broadcast is worth it. Please show us your appreciation. Let us know that we're doing the right thing. Show us your support. Roach, we've got a goal for the show. We're trying to get there. Again, you can go to the website at wpfwfm.org. There's a Donate Now button. Hit that button to pledge quickly and securely. This <laughs> is yours. Go ahead. Thank you. And, folk, we need your money. Uh, I'm, I'm not like one of them preachers say I needed to buy a new jet. I don't, I don't need a jet. I don't even need a car. I just Recording need in progress. We need the money to keep us on the air because we, we, we're not coming to you to buy a new jet and some and a couple of Rolls Royces. We're just trying to get a hot dog or a hat smoke here at Ben's Chili Bowl and keep the radio station on the air. So please, 
If you can, we need you to make a donation or a contribution to Crossroads here at WPFW. That's the only way we can come to you. We've been on air for 15 years, and we must have been doing something right to be here for 15 years and people keeping us on. So please, folks, pick up the phone, make a donation, and, and uh, a, a contribution to the station. My question before we went to the break, uh, to the pitch, was uh, if you were the mayor, Melissa Wasser and Ron Hampton, what would you do? If you were the mayor of D.C., Melissa, start off at you. Yeah, I mean, again, <laughs> look, that what a what a great question. Um, I love the manifestation of that, Roach. That that feels good. Um, you know, again, I I think what what needs to be done and what our district residents need and deserve is a comprehensive public safety system. It needs to be a proactive approach. It needs to focus on evidence based solutions. We're focusing on prevention. We're focusing on effectiveness, accountability, giving people resources. Again, you know, we have these, if it, if it was a magic wand, let's enact all of these police reform commission recommendations and see where we're at. Because putting them into law in the summer of, 20, you know, some of them into law in the summer of 2020 and then reversing course less than four years later is not going to keep residents of DC safer. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot more data collection needs to be done on the impacts of pretrial. Um, you know, we wouldn't be passing this, this pretrial language. Um, and again, reinstating ineffective and failed drug-free zones also don't make us safer. I know we haven't talked about that just yet, but um, there were some changes in drug-free zones that we saw um, from the council in this new version, and it's still not going to keep us safer to keep telling us the same area as a drug-free zone over and over and over again for up to 15 days out of a month. Um, you know, having this is is really not going to keep us safe um, and it's not proactive and it's not helping people that need the help the most. Go ahead, Ron, your, your turn. If you were the mayor, what would you do, Ron? Someone said that when you finish the book, that's when leaders, that's when leadership starts. When you when you when you don't have no more policy, that's when leadership you have to demonstrate leadership. And uh, yeah, I, I would be doing some things because see, these are times that I think you ought to be doing innovative things. You know, and there's some examples around the country in Newark, New Jersey. The police, the the mayor decided that he had to hire some police because it had really gone down in terms of the number. But he hired police officers and social workers and counselors because he worked even developed relationship with people like Larry Ham and them in Newark who work in the community doing the same kind of work that Tyrone and them doing. They're part of the budget, not a grant, but a part of the budget. Of the budget, so, yeah. I, I I would be doing those kind of things because see, all of that stuff that hasn't worked hasn't worked, and and while we rehashing, <laughs> while we rehashing, to me, bro, it, it reminds me like if I'm if I'm in I'm at, I'm at home and if I need my 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 water speaking that the in the kitchen sink is leaking, I call a carpenter. The carpenter don't know anything about yeah plumbing, so I'm not going to call the. The, the plumber. I'm going to call the carpenter. And that's what we had to do. And there's nothing wrong with examining the institution in the kind of way that, look, the city council goes through the institutions in Washington, D.C., agencies with a fine tooth comb. Let's do that with policing. Let's look at what hasn't worked 
what we've been doing and then start talking about what we need to do for the future. And there are models and things that we can be doing. Like, for example, the young man that got shot three times over there on Connecticut Avenue because he was he he was having a mental health episode, gets in a, the police and the attendants talk him into getting into the ambulance. He gets in there. He somehow or another has another episode, jumps out of there. He's down on the ground. He comes out and the, po the same police officer who've been trained. Now, listen to this. He was trained 136 hours in crisis intervention, and he shoots a man three times. Mm, didn't work. Damn. That ought to say something to the leadership of the police department about a couple of things. That crisis intervention isn't the cure. And that the police ought not be responding to situations involving people with mental health episodes. It ought to be professionals who deal with mental health every single day. Because, see, you know, sometimes what happens is when an incident like that happened, they say, well, let's send the police officers training. This officer had training and he still shot him. And he didn't have no weapon in his hand. He thought. See, a mental health professional wouldn't have thought, would have acted, and the guy would probably still be alive today. Now, see, those are the kind of things that we ought to be doing. If you don't do it well, you don't have no business doing it. Let's be real. Because, hmm. see, this is our community that's at stake and the people who live in it. I don't believe the police ought to be responding to a domestic violence situations. They are not be dealing with youth. And Vinny, Vinny proved that. Yeah. So there are things that we ought to be doing. We ought to be analyzing and, 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 and researching and looking at what we have. They were the ones who coined the term evidence-based. I had never heard that before some white person said it. <laughs> but see, I pay attention to shit anyway. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that if it's evidence-based and the evidence ain't there, then that's, let's not do it. Let's do something else. And that's what we need to do. Policing hasn't changed in 150 years. Maybe a little bit around the edges, but it hasn't changed. So we need something that's more appropriate with what it is that's going on in our community today. 2024, not, not 1994, but 2024. And so those are what I would be doing. And, and we got to challenge leadership to do those things. So you're listening to Ron Hampton, a 23-year veteran of the Metropolitan Police Force. I met him back in 72 when I was working at Channel 5 as a TV producer. So and we've been buddies and friends for the last 47, 48 years. And this is a, a former cop who has given it to you firsthand. He's been on the front line. He's been in the trenches. So we got a couple of minutes. I want to say to take what he's saying, sirs, and take what Melissa is saying. For we ain't we not here just to be just to have something to do. This is important, it's meaningful, and the people's lives are at stake. So we got hey, a couple minutes before bro, we leave. Bro, 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 let me get this in before you did. I'm gonna donate fifty dollars because I need to put my money where my mouth is. So I'm gonna you send y'all. Did you say five hundred? <laughs> you say five hundred. <laughs> That's grocery money, boy. <laughs> That's grocery money. I got to, I got to feed these mouths up here. <laughs> okay, we got I'm a couple gonna, minutes. I'm gonna send you fifty dollars, man. You know, because I believe in y'all. Well, let me, thank you, Ron. Let me ask you, would, would it be a left-handed 50 or a right-handed 50? No, it's going to be a right-handed left-handed money. <laughs> 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 
All right, Melissa, we got a couple of minutes. You want to get some closing remarks and let our listeners know what they can do if they got uh, uh, issues with this particular omnibus crime bill that's being considered this morning by the city council. You can start off, Melissa, then we close with Ron. Sure, sounds good. And just uh, just to Ron's point earlier about, you know, the the dealing with the crisis response training and things like that, I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention ACLU DC as a part of a coalition the DC crisis response coalition here in the district to try to um, remove police out of out of crisis response and make sure that it's dealing with responders that are comprehensive and have an integrated network of people who have experienced mental health crisis themselves. If people are interested, they can go to dccrisisresponse.org. They can sign a card and learn more about some things we have coming up in the spring. Um, that's going to take a community to change, and we need community help there. Um, as for today, you know, today is just the first vote on this bill. There's going to be a second vote. Um, we hope uh, we hope it will be in March. Um, it should be around March 5th. Um, so if today you can't listen in, uh, you can go to YouTube, you can go to DC Council's website and watch the hearing. Um, you can watch it after the fact and see what you don't agree with. Again, there's no reason that um, we should be locking people up. Um, which again, in practice, is going to lock up more black and brown folks. We don't need more ineffective drug-free zones that are just mm -hmm. going to move people uh, around the city. Um, and so you have another chance to contact your council members um, and you can tell them what you think of any part of this bill. Um, you know, we want to make sure that this is, again, a comprehensive public safety system and this reactive bill is not it. Um, you know, we want to make sure that police officers um, can face consequences. Because if they're allowed to yeah. abuse their power without facing consequences, you know, the public can grow reluctant to interact with police at all. Um, you know, those body-worn camera changes would spread distrust of police. We already know body-worn camera provisions help promote police accountability um, and help deter officer misconduct. And if there's distrust between communities and the police, there's going to uh, be no cooperation. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a big problem. So again... Yeah. You can tell you can tell your council members what you think, and we have. Give my number to reach you at uh, Melissa. Your phone number. I, I was just I don't have a phone number um, for me, but I will say um, there's some stuff online if you've been um, taking a look at uh, the some uh, folks with uh, ACLU DC, Harriet's Wildest Dreams. Um, you can go online and sign up for more actions with us. We're going to be at the council member the council building today. Right after I leave, I'm going to head to the council building uh, to keep an eye on the proceedings and. You know, you have more time to contact your council okay. members. If you want to do that through our website, you can go to ACLUDC.org. Um, there's a big action alert on our website that asks the council to amend the Secure DC Omnibus Act. You can send a quick email and then there'll be phone numbers there for you to call the council members specifically okay. and tell them what you think. Thank you. That's been Melissa Wasser, Policy Director at the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Thank you, Melissa. Now we're here from Ron Ham. We got two minutes, Ron. No, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna belabor the point because Melissa touched on all of it. I just wanted to say I love y'all. Keep doing good work, uh, uh Roach, Mertine, and and Melissa too. And 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 if if the if the people in the audience want to get in touch with me, get in touch with Roach. I'm willing to be or do whatever you want me to do because we need some change in this city. Thanks. Okay, and uh, we're closing out our show. You got a brief remark, uh, Pitch, Jerry, before we get out of here? Yes, sir. We're asking people to support WPFW and go active in your communities. You've got to go active. Don't just sit there and 
take this. You know, if you don't become part of your community, you're going to you're going to become a victim. So please support WPFW. Make the call 800-222-9739 or go to our website, WPFWFM.org. It only happens here at WPFW. Speaking truth power, addressing the issues of justice. And thank you. Thank you for tuning in to. Hey, Roach, Roach uh, we do have one person who's donated uh, so far, Beverly from Washington, D.C. If anybody can join Beverly in donating to Crossroads and WPFW, please do call 202-588-9739 or 800-222-9739. Join Beverly. Yeah, and thank you. And, and Ron Hampton, we, we'll take that check for 500 when the show is over. Thank you for making that contribution. <laughs> it's very simple. It's about connecting the dots and you're connecting to your community. You are not alone. A lot of people are scared out here and going into isolation and cocooning. Get involved. Connect with WPFW. Connect with your council. Go active. If we all go back to sleep, we're in trouble. Okay. All right. Y'all take care. Say we got a couple more minutes. Uh... I uh, just want to say thank you for listening to the show. And uh, we're coming to you in the next hour. We, we do we do a two-hour show the first Tuesday of every month. Our next guest will be Dr. William Lawson. And we're talking about black health and black wealth, uh, black health and black medicine. And the suicide rate for black people is, again, off the chain. Why is it every topic we come up with is a crisis? We are the recipients of the worst of it. We lead in all the negative categories. Why is it? Now we're talking about mental health, insanity, suicide that's increasing in our community. Everything that's wrong is increasing in our community. Why? Roach, you said it on a previous broadcast. When they shut down St. Elizabeth's Mental Health Institution, how many people were let out onto the street? 8,000. 8,000. And this has happened all over the country. When you're talking about homelessness, and I did three years in St. Elizabeth's for the criminal insane. And when they passed the law in 1977 or 87, they shut down all state hospitals and took all the crazy people and put them in the streets. That's who we are seeing now. They ain't got nowhere to go, eating out the trash cans, eating out the curbs, et cetera. Again, prevention, being uh, concerned about the next person. We got to treat people how we want. There's one thing that all of us can do to make the thing world a lot better. Treat people how you want to be treated. And that solves all this, all this juggy boogie. We're going to treat people how you want to be treated. Until next to, to the next hour, we see you in a few minutes. This is Roach Brown with my wife, Mertine. And our co-host, Nikishi Taifa, is in Brazil. She couldn't make it this morning. She tried to call in from Brazil. So maybe she'll call in on the second hour. And you'll hear from Nikishi Taifa. And she is a dynamite. Boy, we, we miss her tremendously. Thank you for listening to Crossroads. My name is Roach Brown, and this is, remember, your inner voice is never wrong. Merry Christmas. And tell it to the head. <laughs>
All we need is $200 to go for Crossroads. Uh, call and donate your pledge of support for Roach Brown, NWPFW at 202-588-9739 or 800-222-9739. We just got a generous donation of $250 from man Ian for Richmond, CD Enterprises presents Grammy Award-winning jazz singer and songwriter Gregory Porter live in concert February 25th at the Theater at MGM National Harbor. Tickets are available now at MGMNationalHarbor.com.